Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. My name is Scott. I'm joined today by Drew. Ciao. And, well, it's another intermission episode, so that means we just talk about a bunch of films with no rhyme or reason, which admittedly is not really all that dissimilar to our M over other <laughs> podcasts, but anyway. Um, today, we are kicking things off with a look at the House of Gucci. Drew, what's that about? Yes, well... Two Ridley Scott films for the price of one in this episode, you lucky lot. This one is House of Gucci, and I'm sure entirely accurate and an utterly unsensationalised account of the lives of the Gucci family, <laughs> and the introduction to their midst of one Patrizia Reggiani, who married one of the dynasty and then had him murdered after he divorced her. Patrizia, played by Lady Gaga, meets Adam Driver's Maurizio at a party and is immediately smitten by him. She sets her sights on him and eventually wins him over, with the two marrying, but Maurizio leaving the Gucci company and being disinherited by his father, Rodolfo, Jeremy Irons, who disapproves of Patrizia and believes her to be a gold digger. After Patrizia has a child, she encourages Maurizio to return to Gucci and help things along by insinuating herself into the family by getting friendly with Maurizio's uncle Aldo, Al Pacino, which eventually leads to her and Maurizio moving to New York and working for the Gucci enterprise there. Her ambitions don't end there, though, and she sets her sight on she and Maurizio taking control of the company, being willing to sacrifice Aldo and anyone else who crosses her path in order to do it. Maurizio, however, falls out of love with Patrizia and begins an affair, and in a fine, upstanding manner, dumps her by lawyer, which I think is the rich 1980s version of being dumped by text message. Which, as you can imagine, rather angers Patrizia. Seeking revenge, she hires a couple of men to murder Maurizio. But it's because she loves him, though, you know, before being caught and imprisoned. House of Gucci is a reasonably entertaining film, and the performances are all solid to great. With particular pod, it's going to Lady Gaga, who continues to prove herself a very fine actor indeed. She certainly makes Patrizia a much more compelling and sympathetic character than she has any right to be. I only knew a little bit about her before watching this, the vast bulk of that from Lady Gaga's recent appearance on the late show with Stephen Colbert, but that certainly piqued my interest. Obviously, Patrizia's not a good person, because good people don't arrange to have other people murdered, but I was interested in what kind of a person she was. She seemed to be ambitious and determined, but not cold-hearted or self-centred, and that's fine. But Patrizia then bases some of her decisions on a fortune teller, which made me realise, oh, you're an idiot person. (laughs) Okay. The worst thing about that, though, is that the film seems to suggest that Pina, her fortune teller, played by Salma Hayek, is actually psychic, which is weird. (laughs) That and a few other things render the tone of the film a little inconsistent, to say the least, with oddly farcical moments mixed with the serious and two notable scenes where the hit is being decided upon and then arranged apparently happening when everyone involved had forgotten how to act and then well, half the time it's a strong character drama and the other half it's a soap opera of the farcical moments most involve Paolo Gucci Aldo's idiot son and the black sheep of the family a character played so broadly and comically that standing out from everyone else so much as he did I assumed must actually have been that much of a buffoon, because it'd be too ridiculous otherwise. 
only on checking the credits and discovering that he was played by Jared Leto, who I had 100% <laughs> failed to recognise, did I think, oh, and begin to suspect the presence of an acting choice. <laughs> I hope that you can hear the capital letters there. I'll grant that it's an entertaining, committed performance, but it's one that feels like it should be happening in an- another film entirely. The accents are a mixed bag too, but mostly a mix of bad, with Leto in particular always sounding like he's only a step or two away from declaring, It's a me, Mario. <laughs> Jeremy Irons, it seems, is entirely incapable of an Italian accent, whereas Pacino, who's otherwise very good in the film, is 50% Italian and 50% Jewish New Yorker. Though, really, the biggest issue I had with the accents is why they bothered with him at all. The last duel, which will come to soon, which is set in France, has everyone doing, or at least attempting, an English accent, you know, like they have in France. Uh, they could all just use their real accents. We'd understand, honestly. <laughs> anyway, it's still pretty entertaining and worth watching for Gaga alone. Just don't imagine that it bears much resemblance to reality. <laughs> Yeah, um, the only interesting thing that this film had for me was maybe Lady Gaga's performance, so I've not seen it, but I, I would like to see her acting a bit more. She's probably was quite good at it on the, the one basis that I have to judge it from, so. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, I have to, uh, yeah. she was comfortably the best thing in that's her name. Born. Yeah. Yes, I could not bring the name to mind there at all, yes, and <laughs> she's really good in this. Her accent, is it's okay although i did see one person a, a dialect coach an actual italian describe it sounding more like russian and I, I, I'll, um, <laughs> I'll bow to her because i think she would know better yes. um, but it wasn't like off-putting in that whereas that jared leto's is so broad jeremy irons is non-existent adam drivers is fine i guess uh, but it's yeah why are you doing italian accent? you're not speaking in italian yeah it's, we understand it's acting. What, what are you doing? <laughs> it's a strange choice, and uh, yeah, I, I, even having not seen it, I would still much rather they didn't. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and it's something. But and uh, specifically today, because of the last duel, where they're in France, but nobody's doing a French accent, hmm. and only half the cast is doing an English accent. Although I'm not sure whether that's choice or ability. But yeah. coming from the same director, and the same director, of course, who directed Gladiator, where everybody was also English. Yes, um, even the Australians. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it, it's always odd. I, I don't know how it's, it's become so normalised now that, oh, well, ancient people, they'll, they'll, they'll sound like English people, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, but yes, if you're speaking Italian, then you'd want to do an Italian accent. If you're speaking in English, we understand the setting. Yes. We'll just, what the performance, you'd have to type it an accent on. It's, um, uh, yeah. I, I just find such things odd. I mean, there may be arguments for it sometimes. At least if there's a film about Italian people set in Italy, it's a strong argument they would at least attempt an Italian accent. Yes, it, it's much more fitting than The Last Duel or Gladiator, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just find it odd. Um, yeah, Lady Gaga's really, really good. And I really probably worth seeing it for her alone. And it's quite entertaining. It's just, there's, 
no way most of this happened. Like, I, most of the situation you'd understand it would be best dramatised. But yeah. like, given you can't possibly know what happened behind closed doors, like, it's clearly just entirely made up out of whole cloth. But some of it's so daft. And, <laughs> and Jared Leto's performance honestly feels like it's from a completely different film with a completely <laughs> different tone. I mean, he's unreckoned. I really is. Um, if I knew he was in it, I'd forgotten it. I did my same thing of every time I sit down to watch a film, I'm, I decide that I'm going to pay attention to the producer, the writer, the directors, um, although I do normally the stars at the start and within 30 seconds of the film starting, I've already completely, um, forgotten to pay any attention to the credits. I'm looking at everything else instead. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't notice his name and I had no idea who it was and it got this, oh, that, that, that explains things. <laughs> um, I mean, it's not that he's a bad actor. I don't think he is, but he's a, well, he, he, he's a definitely a him actor. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I do recommend it though. Um, it's just, it's, it's so weird tonally. Yeah. <laughs> Particularly that character, that, that character doesn't belong. But, yes. Uh, to move on to another film that's been getting a lot of plaudits. Uh, very, very different to this time. And that's Kenneth Branagh's Belfast. Yes. Uh, Ken Branagh's latest film as a writer and director is Belfast, set in Checks notes Belfast, Northern Ireland, uh, 1969, and while it's not exactly autobiographical, it's certainly drawing heavily from his own experience as a lad during the Troubles, surely the most British way to describe what's effectively a civil war. It's told through the eyes of Jude Hill's buddy, a nine-year-old in a working-class Protestant family. His father, Jamie Dornan's pa, works in the building trade in England to pay off a swinging tax bill, leaving his wife, Katrina Balfe's ma, to raise buddy, and eldest bro- elder brother, Louis Muscaski's will, uh, variously helped and or hindered by Judy Dench's granny and Kyron Hines' pop, buddy's grandfather. Uh, for a while, at least, Buddy's life and worries seemed broadly in line with what you'd expect for a kid of his age, getting swept up in his friend Lara McDonald's Moira's petty sweet shop theft schemes, struggling with his studies and being alternately bored and terrified by ranting preachers, and trying to get his crush, all of Tenant's Catherine, to notice him, all of which is very charmingly told. Less charming, of course, is rampant sectarianism, as a bunch of knuckle-dragging jagatties decide that Catholics are no longer welcome in majority Protestant areas and start to enforce that through violence, here mostly embodied through Colin Morgan's Billy Clanton, who seeks to involve Buddy's father in the violence. This is a fault line through which the other problems that the working class, poorer families of the era and location must struggle with, be that poor health, lack of prospects, or the heavy-handed authority of the British Army that's drafted them to police the place, doing as sensitive a job of it as you'd expect from the British Army in that sort of role, uh, leading to the family's decision to leave Belfast, as so many others did. Well, there's no shortage of darker themes and moments in Belfast, the framing of it through Buddy's experience makes for a perhaps surprisingly upbeat and very funny movie, uh, while not minimising or excusing the behaviour of those involved, which is a pretty delicate balancing act, which brand has made look easy. Uh, just about the only thing Belfast does that I'm not a massive fan of is the occasional use of colour and what's otherwise a black and white presentation. I get the intent, but it's such an unsubtle technique and an otherwise surprisingly subtle story that is jarring rather than charming. Uh, could also have done without Van Morrison's stylings, though, giving his recent behaviour, but hindsight's twenty twenty, I suppose. Um, but that colour niggle aside, it looks great, has a clutch of great actors acting greatly, has charm to spare, has a funny, warm, empathetic look at a period that I feel really ought to come under more examination. Yes, heartily enjoyed this. Uh, highest recommendation I can come up with, really. Yes, largely on board with what you say. Uh, before we go on, though, and while I, I suspect I can guess, what's the, the current stylings of Van Morrison issue? Oh, he doesn't like lockdowns, or... 
uh, any of that stuff. Yeah, he's a bit of a COVID. Oh, so he doesn't care about other people's welfare. Yeah, that's one. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> is he's happy for other people to die? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's never the people themselves, is it? There's never no. natural justice in the world. Um, I certainly didn't care much for the the color bits. The transition from like contemporary color to ninety sixteen black and white over that wall at the beginning, I actually really liked. Yeah. And that was a nice transition. But the, the the few bits later, mostly in the cinema, and then one bit of the um, play um, later yeah. on, it's, yeah, it's, you're right, it's, it's very much not subtle. Hmm. And, and the, the intent is clear, like this is like sort of one bit that's out of their world, it's sort of magical or different, and it's like away from the kind of day-to-day misery of the place hmm. or the, and the sort of prevailing mood at the time, but it's... It's, it's not subtle. No, not at all. <laughs> no, um, and I don't think you, it was necessary. I think you get that you're when um, the kid and Judy Dench are sitting talking through the film and she's asking all these questions and stuff. Um, <laughs> or like, for, um, <laughs> she's not, presumably not been to the theatre before and she's talking to him like, but at the same time you get like, yeah, they're, they're not experiencing the other miserable stuff just now. Okay. It didn't yeah. need the colour, but. Minor issue. Oh, what I will say is, I got to the end of this, and I'd laughed a few times, and I'd enjoyed it, and I was like, I, could, I found myself thinking, like, oh, I'm not sure if I enjoyed that. While the tears were pouring down my cheeks, like, oh, <laughs> I think I did. I think it affected yeah. me. <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> Wake up, friends, like, because yeah, there's some, like, generally, like, heartbreaking moments in it, too, just in terms of, not that anything, Bad actually happens to Buddy. It's just it's more just like the things that are happening around this child and the, yeah. the things this child is witnessing, and that's just always wrong. And yeah, you get to the end of the film, tears pouring down my cheeks. Oh, did I th- did you wake up, Egypt? <laughs> uh, I did like to. It's got. Um, I think a lot of people are aware of this, but for all the and maybe because of the things that have happened in Belfast for for many decades now, the sense of humour of the people of Belfast is so, so black. <laughs> and I love that kind of sense of humour and like, you know, somewhere it's come from, but um, it's a particularly dark sense of humour there and there's quite a lot of that through the film. Yeah. It's not just general humour from and congeniality in any of it. There's, like, there's real touches of really dark humour in there that I really like. And some sort of yeah, slightly absurdist stuff which which really just tickled me to. Like, the kids encouraged, buddies encouraged to go and Rob from a store that's been looted. Yeah. And he's... I laugh so much. Yeah. He's standing on the doorstep and his mum's brain is like, why did you steal that? Why did you take that washing powder? Why did you take the washing powder? And he just looks out and goes, it's biological. <laughs> oh, that cracked me up so much. Yeah, uh, yeah it's, a, it's a really charming film. And, and Scott, here, here's the thing that's... Really well told story. It's complete and is only 97 minutes long. Yeah. <laughs> That's called foreshadowing, folks. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's great. Watch it. Lovely, lovely film. Yes. Although it's obviously missing kind of the unnecessarily being Russian. <laughs> As all films have. <laughs> Should really be in every film. Um. Another film that Kenneth Branagh does not appear as a Russian in would be Spider-Man, I assume. I've not seen this one, so I'm just going to go out on a limb and guess. No, um, although before I watched this, I did go back and watch a couple of the films that 
sort of tie into this, uh, including the Amazing Spider-Man Two, where Paul Giamatti does play a Russian, and um, <laughs> well, that's not good. No. <laughs> yeah. uh, talking of, of which, I saw. I went back and I watched Spider-Man 3, which I hadn't seen in ages and remember very little of, and then the two Andrew Garfield films. Hmm. The first one, uh, I remember at the time, you and I both thinking, because we talked about it on our previous podcast, hmm. uh, thinking that it was sort of kind of largely comparable to the first Sam Raimi film. I don't feel quite like that anymore, but it's still pretty hmm. decent. Um, the second one, oh my God, that's a terrible film. Yeah. Uh, I, I was much more forgiving of it when we, when we spoke about that before. Oh, it's Amazing Spider-Man 2, and I, I hated it. And <laughs> this is terrible, and it makes no sense, and the retcon stuff, and the characters are terrible. I'm like, why doesn't this work? And then I looked up the screenwriter, and it was Roberto Orsi and Alex Kurtzman. No, uh, oh, no. well, that explains everything, because Alex Kurtzman is the worst. <laughs> but before I go on yet another rant... Uh, about Alex Kurtzman, which I, I, I want to do, but I won't. Um, <laughs> I will talk about Spider-Man instead. Um, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web, any size. Catches thieves, just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. Is he strong? Listen, bud, he's got radioactive blood. Can he cut the running time? No, he can't. Unnecessarily long durations are apparently enshrined in law now or something. <laughs> that needs some work because it doesn't scan. Hey there, there goes the Spider-Man. <laughs> yes, I'm beating that drum again. I'll stop when the problem does. <laughs> so another Spider-Man film is with us, which picks up where Spider-Man Far From Home left off with J.K. Simmons and J. Jonah Jameson, now a full-on Alex Jones analogue, telling the world that Spidey killed Mysterio and that his identity is that of New York teenager Peter Parker. This sees Peter's life made a little complicated, not just because of the lack of privacy he now has, but because a substantial number of people believe him to be a murderer. Though this seems to mostly manifest in someone throwing some paint on him, and he, MJ and Ned, all get arrested, but Daredevil turns up in his lawyer role and largely waves it all away, so that's convenient. The one place that it does affect him, though, is university applications, and he, MJ, and Ned all fail to get in anywhere they're applied, including their preference of MIT, because of their association with Spider-Man. Peter, who the film almost goes to pains to show, is a Tony Stark-like scientific super genius and clearly needs to learn nothing at university, is upset, but that's especially for his friends. And he does what anybody in this situation would do and seeks out a wizard to cast a spell for him. Because, <laughs> if you remember, wizards are a thing here. <laughs> Taking pity on Peter, Doctor Strange casts a spell so that the world will forget Spider-Man's identity. But his irritation with and distraction by Peter's many caveats and last-minute changes means he wizards wrong. And a hole is ripped in the multiverse resulting in several villains who died fighting Spider-Man in previous films coming to this universe. More will likely follow, and the whole world is in peril again. It seems entirely reasonable stakes for a film about an acrobatic teenager in a lycra suit. <laughs> These villains are Dr. Octopus, the Green Goblin, Electro, Sandman and the Lizard, all played by the same actresses in their previous big screen outings, to varying degrees of success. 
Alfred Molina and Willem Dafoe come out the best by far, managing to be both sinister and sympathetic. Reese Ephens is a giant lizard, and fortunately not much seen, which is all for the best. Though when he has seen the creature design doesn't look quite as ridiculous as it did in 2012. And Thomas Hayden Church's performance doesn't go much beyond introducing himself to Spider-Man with It's me, remember, Flint Marco. As if Spider-Man might forget and confuse him with some other giant sand monster. <laughs> Electro, a terrible villain in 2014, is also terrible here. And also not at all the same character. Because he or Jamie Foxx is playing the role in a way that seems... Very Jamie Foxx, suggesting the tiresome presence of an actor's ego in contract discussions. <sighs> the wizard fella tasks Spidey with rounding up and dispatching these bad guys. But Spidey, being a kind and sensitive chap, decides he should help them all first instead. So uses his super brain and some handy, stark, magical MacGuffin tech along with some unexpected multi-armed assistants to cure them all before sending them back to universities where they're all already dead. Uh, <laughs> I suppose it's a thought that counts. Some people just don't want to be helped, though, having fully embraced their villainy. But damn it, Spider-Man's decided he's going to cure them, and cure them he will, whether they want it or not. This film not exactly sending the best message about self-acceptance and autonomy. <laughs> This disagreement naturally leads to conflict, and it seems Spidey may be outmatched, but fortunately it wasn't just bad guys who came through the big reality hole. The excessive running time I mentioned in my introduction wasn't as noticeable here as in many other films, perhaps because most of Spider-Man No Way Home's flab lies in the middle and the pace and enjoyment picks up considerably by the end, especially after the arrival of additional Spider-Men, but it's still annoying and continues to make me feel like editors no longer have any respect in Hollywood, or at least that their profession and purpose does not. The film could certainly do with any scene involving John Favreau's Happy Hogan being cut, plus all of the attempts at comedy rather than wit and humour, especially when at other times beloved characters are genuinely imperiled. However, it's still an enjoyable film and a reasonable amount above the general baseline competency that most of the films in the MCU achieve but it's very much the least of the three Tom Holland Spider-Man films thus far and may also be the last as usual with these films an advisory not to think too hard about it if you're capable of such things though here it's mostly just in the denouement where things don't make a heap of sense and if you've not seen this yet but intend to a quick PSA there's a mid credit scene that's worth staying a couple of minutes to watch, but the post credit scene is literally, literally just a trailer for the next Doctor Strange film. So, do what Marvel can, or will not, and respect your time by skipping that. <laughs> um, I will probably still get this because it sounds like a goddamned mess, and there's nothing I like more than a goddamned mess on screen. Um, but yeah, I, I wish it was a bit shorter by the sounds of it. Um, I, I'm sure I'll love the same complaint as you do, because yes, very much a running theme around these parts and Marvel in particular. So, yeah, again, I just want to make it clear: I have nothing against long films. I think the best film ever made is Lawrence Arabia, and that's a film where the word epic is actually appropriate. Mm. In every way, it's films that are unnecessarily long. Yeah, and I just I don't understand this. It's just there doesn't need to be any editing going on anymore. I like directors have too much control over that when it's not their strength. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know where the look, trend has come from. 
Uh, the whole Marvel thing in particular, I, I don't know how much any director's got any sway with Marvel at all. Um, <laughs> that seems to be a studio that has some kind of MO of just wanting long run times to fill up presumably streaming services or keeping yes. cinemas engaged. I don't know quite what the deal is, but yeah, they, they, they have for a long time not had any respect for our time. So, <laughs> yeah. yes. Uh, so if directors have no power, then editors certainly don't. Yeah. Um, but it's not just that. I mean, it's been a while now. It's certainly well more than a decade if you look at something like Bridesmaid, which was 2012, which yeah, really good film, but it's a comedy that's two hours long. No comedy needs to be two hours long. Yeah. I think sometimes it's, I don't know, people are just too fond of their material and they're not heeding the great advice of kill your darlings. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, it seems to be more and more prevalent. It just annoys me, especially when something is good and it's made less good by being too long. It's like, you don't always want more of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so unfortunately, it's not a drum we're going to <laughs> stop buying anytime soon because the trend is going to stop anytime soon. Yes. <laughs> yes, uh... So let's move on to a film that is also too long, but maybe not necessarily for the same reason. Although maybe you enjoyed it more than I did, Scott, which is The Last Jewel. Yes, uh, The Last Jewel. The past is a foreign country and they do things differently there. And France is also a foreign country and they do things differently there too. So imagine how differently they must have done things in medieval France in the past. Speak English, for one, if Ridley Scott's Last Jewel is to be believed. And it's based on a true story, so why wouldn't you believe it? Uh, uh, this is this story, told three ways from each of the principal participants' viewpoints of the trial by combat of Matt Damon's Sir John D. Bob Carol G's and Adam Driver's Jack Legree's, uh, the latter of which is, a, uh, is accused of raping the former's wife, Jodie Comer's Magritte T. Bob Carol G's. Yes, I will use this all the way through it. Um, Sir, Sir John is up first, a brave but foolhardy soul who falls in hard times after the Caroline War and struggles to pay his dues to Ben Affleck's Count Pierre de Alcanon. Although his former squire, Jack Legree's, does try and soften Pierre's low opinion of Jean. Jean's fortunes improve after his marriage to the wealthy but disgraced de Thibaville family, uh, but property squabbles with the Count, gifting away land from him to Legree, starts a feud that bubbles along until, when John's away fighting a disastrous campaign in Scotland, de Greece rapes Magritte. When a capacious justice system leads typically skewed results, he opts for trial by combat. The second part tells the Greece side of the same story, but it's a third part that truly packs the film's wallop as Magritte experiences the harrowing rape in altogether too gruesome detail, uh, but does hammer home how often how awful women were treated in this time period, literally property of their husbands. The duel itself offers a fair degree of wallops and hammering, and show that Ridley's not forgotten the swords and sandals skills that he's picked up over the course of his career in a film that arguably harkens back to his debut in 1977 with the Duelists. Ridley Scott had some weird blame game thing going on about the relative commercial failure of this. Something about millennials and mobiles which had some serious old man shouts at cloud vibes, <laughs> particularly, the, particularly in the middle of a virulent pandemic. No, it is the audiences who are wrong. And I don't really blame them for their apathy. It's not that The Last Jewel is a bad film, or any accent I care to think of, but it's not a good one either. Uh, Rashomon and Plate Mail sounds like a winning formula, but the end result's just a bit drab. Visually drab in the main, which is most likely the quote-unquote authentic way to do things, and I have some respect for that, but it does wind up making the whole affair rather flatter than the drama of the story maybe deserves. Also, said story and characters seem to be chasing authenticity rather than interest, which, again, I have some respect for, but this is not a documentary. And much as it goes against every fibre of my being, I do kind of wish this had leaned more into, uh, a little bit more heavily into the soap opera aspect of the tale. <laughs> 
as it stands, oddly enough, it's maybe Ben Affleck that comes out of this the best, and certainly about a week on, he's the only character I remember with any life and vibrancy about him, or he's the only character that I remember full stop. I'm certain there's an audience for this that will really appreciate what it's set out to do, but it's much less of a fraction of the mainstream audience than Ridley Scott expected, apparently. And I think it's also fair to say that it's a well-enough-made film that it deserves to have been given a chance by more of that audience, but again virulent pandemic going a virulent pandemic I would say it's worth giving this a look from the safety of your sofa now that it's started popping up in uh, home services even if it's not the most entertaining film that Ridley's ever made it will satisfy people with a more grounded sensibility uh, three and a half out of five just <laughs> yeah um, I would not recommend this the word that comes to mind most readily for me to describe this was slog I genuinely found this a miserable experience to watch. Hmm. It doesn't help that set aside the injustices and sort of, I guess you could say it's a way to sort of compare like modern day with then and like how we've come a long way, but also in some ways not a long way. Yeah. But this film is about three of the things that I despise most, um, monarchy, feudalism and religion. That was pretty much the entire film, so I was not having a good time, Scott. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it's not often you, you watch a film with so few likable characters, in which case, I mean, in this case, I mean, one. There was one likable character, and that's the woman, <laughs> um, who doesn't, maybe by dint of, of the situation, didn't actually have much of a character, but it was her. It was Margovic's Mar- only um, likable, sympathetic character. Everybody else is a monster of varying degree. Yes. Matt Damon, um, trying his best to do an English accent in France and failing. So strange. Um, but we've covered that. Uh, like the first thing he does when she, uh, she tells him that he's, she's been raped is, are you telling me the truth? Well, I'm assuming we're not supposed to relate to that character then because he's the- <laughs> Yes, I'm not going to swear. I don't like him. Well, let's leave it at that. Um, then, it's so strange. Ben Affleck, who actually is quite entertaining in this, even though looking super weird with the um, bleach blonde hair. Yes, very strange. Uh, is presumably from a different film. Um, <laughs> yeah. he just got, he's effing and blinding everywhere and dropping uh, the occasion by which I mean many C-bombs. Why? He's the only person in the film that swears at all, I think. Certainly swears like that. I, I assume it's some sort of attempt to to make him seem different, that he's, because he's the lord of the land, that he's got some sort of license to act in some sort of different or shocking manner. Mm-hmm. And it, it didn't really do anything. I was like, why, why are you doing that? What, what does that say? Although... He at least was mildly entertaining while doing it, which was unlike almost all the rest of the film. So that's good, I guess. I just, I didn't really see the point beyond the say, like it's suggesting that he's, uh, with his position of privilege, he was given license to act differently. And that's the way they show it of him to speak in a way that nobody else would dare. Yeah. At the time, but it's, hmm. it's not great. And going back to my point of there being no likable or sympathetic characters, the guy playing the French king had a face that you'd basically never tire of kicking, jumping up and down on, or swinging a baseball bat into. <laughs> um, 
so yeah, as violent a thought as that is, these are the thoughts that occupied my mind while I was struggling to get to the end of this. I found it a slog. I didn't enjoy it at all. It's not a bad film. And that you can't say the performances are bad and it, it looks authentically miserable, I guess. Um, yes. And some of the settings are at least interesting looking. But even like the... Like the central conceit of the film that this was the last duel of uh, like, the whole idea of trial by combat is, is ridiculous and it gets back into the whole religious nonsense which was bothering me but historical basis fair enough and that somehow if you were right God would let you in and that would prove that you were right not, not anything like crazy like you know evidence hmm. anything like that no no none of that nonsense trial by combat that'll do you I kind of wish they played into the dual part of it more because it just sort of seems like somebody has the idea at some point they go, we'll do that now then. Yeah. The fact that that hadn't been done for a while would be outlawed soon. I kind of feel that they should have played into that bit more like that was like quite a significant event. Yeah. It almost doesn't feel like it is. That event's more interesting than all the characters that are in it, which is yeah. perhaps my primary complaint. There's, there's two complaints. That and also the fact that it, it's kind of doing the Rashomon thing, but it's not really. Um, I was expecting to get a bit more of kind of a recontextualizing thing going on and you just don't, um, you just get a bit more each time, but there does not seem to be any particular reason for that, um, narrative device to be used rather than just telling a story normally. Um, yeah. It's, it's a bit of a waste of effort, really. Yeah, um, and the, yeah, the difference between the three versions of the story are quite subtle. Mm. Yeah, so it's, none of their stories differ enormously, certainly in terms of the details of, like, the significant part at the end. Yeah. Um, well, fair enough, you get a bit more uh, of an, a look at their character and what, what led up to it and what they thought was important. But again, nothing that actually recontextualizes it. That's just something you could have told in a normal narrative structure. So, yeah, yeah. a yeah. bit strange. I had, so I had more joy, that's um, more luck, I guess, with the final section of the three um, viewpoints, the Jodie Comer's yes, section. Because understandably she's much more sympathetic than anybody else and she's the one likeable character in the whole film and, th- and that section as I came towards the film quite a bit more there hmm. uh, and that's because you know probably she's the one that's not an arsehole <laughs> the, the, the one person in the whole film it seems and certainly I'm, I'm sympathetic to this character who's literally by law treated like property as you said Scott that the idea is it's not that the rape was a crime against this woman. The rape was a crime against her husband somehow. Yeah. Because morality is a thing that we only got quite recently, <laughs> it seems. So that bit is more tolerable. I wouldn't say I enjoyed it. It's just the whole film's just feels as miserable as the kind of grey sky, rainy setting that quite a part, quite a lot of it happens in. I just feel like that for the whole film. Yeah. It's not one I'd recommend at all. I was just miserable watching this. I know it was, unfortunately, Craig's not here to give us his opinion, but I know he enjoyed it quite a bit more than I did and was particularly tickled by um, Ben Affleck's sweary performance. Um, mm. So I guess between the three of us, we're, we're slightly more positive than negative, but for me, it's, I just 
hate, well, not hated it's wrong again. There's obviously film craft there. there there's as well shot. Guess for the most part, well acted accents aside. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and obviously the special effects and the the Legree role. I'm sure you agree, Scott. Very very good. Yes, um, as always. ILM's best for that um, for that character, Mister Driver. There. Yes. But, yeah, it's it's not like conventionally bad. It's a well made film. It's just miserable. Yeah, it's just, it is. It's just not a pleasant experience to watch. Yeah, it's a very drab film. Drab seems to be the overwhelming word for it. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It's certainly not a good time to watch. Uh, yeah. So, I, I certainly get where you're coming from. I, I maybe respect that a little more by the sounds of it, but yeah, it, it is not really a fun time for anyone. So, no. Yeah. Shall we move on then to uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife? I That's what it's ask- called, right? <laughs> Yes, uh, Ghostbusters After Eight. After Eight, yeah, okay. No, After Eight. Ghostbusters After Eight. It's Mindy. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we take a look at uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife? Uh, well, I've seen. I've written notes about it, so I guess we probably should make use yes. of that. <laughs> Do you remember Ghostbusters? Do you? Do you remember Ghostbusters? Jason Reitman whose dad Ivan directed the first two films in the series, certainly does. It seems, though, that he's afraid that you don't. So he's helpfully left many, 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 many references to it in this latest instalment, and has even copied the final act more or less completely, all to make sure that you remember. Yes, I'm sure that's why. I mean, it's not just a cynical, cash-grabbing soft reboot, right? Who in Hollywood would do such a thing? (laughs) And I'd like to assure you that at no point at all while watching it was I reminded of The Force Awakens. Nuh-uh. <laughs> Strange, though, that what I guess was a family film, phantasmic fellatio aside, by marketing, but at least a film for adolescents by tone, should be so celebrated 40 years later in a film very much aimed at kids, who have almost certainly never seen the original. Strange still that it should start with an old Egon being murdered by a demon, causing his dilapidated house and dirt farm to be left to his estranged daughter, whom he abandoned because apparently he became an arsehole. Egon, it seems, was obsessed with a mine in the middle of Oklahoma, owned by Shandor Mining Company. Because what Ghostbusters, a comedy film about some academics who become schlubby blue-collar exterminators who accidentally saved the world, really needed was lore. <laughs> His attempts at stopping this mine being the centre of another coming of Gozer seemingly failed with his death. But fortunately for the world, his daughter is broke, so she's forced to move to Oklahoma with her children where they can find out what their grandfather was up to and stop all this ruckus. This will involve visiting the mine, where we're treated to lines supposed to show just what a scientific genius 12-year-old Phoebe, the film's protagonist, is. Like, how do you make steel beams from a semiconductor like selenium? Which, rather than me uh, marvelling at her knowledge of semiconductors at the age of 12, just left me wondering how you make steel beams from anything at all that's not steel. (laughs) (laughs) To resurrecting Ecto-1, strapping on a proton pack and destroying stuff, not being believed by the authorities, people being turned into demon dogs and then saving the world. And somehow the Ghostbusters will have collectively passed out of memory in this universe with only Paul Rudd's summer school teacher remembering them and no one seemingly aware of New York City being terrorised by a giant marshmallow man nor of the Statue of Liberty striding down its avenues. 
ghosts too, it seems, only existed for a couple of years and have never been heard of since the 1980s. Uh, as I alluded to earlier, the saving the world, but it's just the final act of the 1980 film, 1984 film done over, differentiate itself from that film in only two significant ways. One, being emotional and sentimental. Two words that apply to exactly 0% of the running time of the original, and which are exceedingly unnecessary and unwelcome here. And two, continuing the deeply disturbing and unethical trend of literally raising the dead from the grave and representing them on screen without their consent. Something I only expect to get worse as technology gets better. For all that, I did enjoy it for the most part, particularly the performance of McKenna Grace's Phoebe, which had worried me beforehand, but is generally pretty engaging. Carrie Coon and Paul Rudd give reasonably entertaining performances, but beyond that... There's a reason I've only named one character so far, and that's because the film has only one character, and that's Phoebe. It doesn't do anything egregiously badly, save the irritating comedy sidekick, the self-monikered podcast, who, in the way of all comedy sidekicks, is not funny, and who you'll want to see bloodily dismembered, and who you'll definitely be disappointed to see survive instead. And a wasted cameo from J.K. Simmons, which is always a crime. It helps us suspect that I don't have the original Ghostbusters on the same pedestal that so many seem to. Ghostbusters was, and is, a good film. I enjoy it. And that's it. It's not special when it never was. And Ghostbusters Afterlife is fine, but it just didn't need to exist. And the potential reasons for it doing so seem at best misguided, and at worst, deeply cynical. 11 out of 10. (laughs) says Paul Ross Uh, (laughs) I I was pretty lukewarm on the general concept of this film when I first heard about it and every more detail that gets unveiled about it makes me less and less wanting to see the damn thing Uh, so yes I haven't Um, and I I will probably keep it that way until at some point it appears on TV and I'm too lazy to change the channel Um, it just sounds bad I'm sure. I'm sure if I did watch it, it's probably competent enough that I would get some enjoyment out of it. But it just sounds so amazingly cynical, and I just don't want to be involved in it anymore. There's enough of that stuff going around already. I don't need to encourage it with any of my hard-earned dollars going towards it. So uh, happy to sit this one out. Yeah, uh, honestly, it, it's fine. It could just be a bit shorter. That will not surprise you to, to hear <laughs> coming from me. Although it's not the biggest culprit in that sort of thing. Hmm. It's just, it's strange to see who it's aimed at. It really feels, although I remember going to see the original Ghostbusters when it came out in the cinema. So I'd have been five. And hmm. I remember like that it being promoted like a family film because it was on Andrex promotion and stuff, the badges for it somewhere. I went Ghostbusters with Andrex and stuff like that. <laughs> so you can, I remember all of that and I remember the film then but when you look at the film now it's, like, it's definitely not like a kids film No, and I'd say it's, it's a stretch to even call it like a family film and not just because of the the infamous fellatio scene hmm. which is weird <laughs> but um, but I can like what now would be kind of like a 12A or something. That actually seems like a more appropriate rating. It's not like there's much in it, but in terms of age. Yeah. 
there are people who are going to get the stuff and it's fine. But that's a 40-year-old film nearly. Yeah. So they've come back to this, come back to nearly 40 years later in a film that's very much pitched to kids. Hmm. Um, and for all of his genuine link to it, because his dad and um, his claim to love Ghostbusters and stuff, Jason Reitman, it feels so cynical. Yeah. Because it's just full of references, like, which kids are not going to get, so who's it for? There's only for adults who are kind of the rather sad group that, like, sell themselves Ghostbusters fanboys or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, it's weird. Again, it doesn't make any sense to it because in, in the world, Ghostbusters is meant to have happened. But, like, the, the character's completely changed and it doesn't make any sense why they did what they did or didn't do what they didn't do. Um, yeah. and also the entire world has forgotten about giant monsters walking around New York that actually happened. <laughs> Can you imagine the stand-up routines in that universe? <laughs> like some, some, like some Paul K. analogue of going up and do you, do you remember a few years back when there was ghosts and the Statue of Liberty came alive and there was the giant marshmallow things? That was funny, wasn't it? What was that all about, eh? Do you remember uh, that? Which yeah. I suppose fits in quite well with the general theme of what you're saying the film's about. Yeah. yeah. Whereas the only, References to like the only person in this town that seems to know anything about it is Paul Rudd's character, and um, he only can show um, these kids by showing them a um, YouTube clip of the original TV adverts that maybe mm. a couple thousand people have seen, a couple yeah. thousand views in it, <laughs> and then like so it's just it's full of these stupid fan service references. And it's it's really annoying. I don't think you needed to make another Ghostbusters film at all, but no. it's it's okay. It's entertaining enough. It's just I don't know who the audience is for this. It's, like, it's really it's very much a kids' film. The main character is a twelve-year-old, and that's what I was excited. It's it's going to be like precocious, really. And the first film is a comedy, whereas the trailers for this make it look like a horror film. Yeah, um, which, which fortunately it's not, but it's not. Like a comedy, it's got comic bits in it, but it's not a comedy. Um, not in the same way, anyway, not like a pure comedy. And then it's so full of fan service, I hate it. Like <laughs> at one point, like the third act is, it's nearly carbon copy of, um, the end of the 1984 film with the, the, the dogs and people turning into dogs and ghosts are coming back, although this time, um, Zool's played by, Olivia Wilde, unrecognisably, so, you know, that was a worthwhile casting performance and paycheck to give out. And there's a, the scene where the Stay Puffed marshmallows apparently still exist in this universe despite that brand surely have been burned by <laughs> a monster attacking New York. Yeah. Where, but suddenly they become miniature. Stave puff marshmallow mints and then they start kind of acting in a way that comes from like another 1984 film because they basically start acting like gremlins <laughs> like nothing in this film is original because I've seen gremlins I know where that comes from that's exactly like gremlins <laughs> and I, I don't know that what happens with gremlins isn't a reference or inspired by another film I don't have watched all the films in the world unfortunately um, but like Ghostbusters it's famous for 94, but so is Gremlins. Gremlins and like the end of it is so, with these wee marshmallows, so like Gremlins, so even that's not original. And also it's just like, why are they there? Hmm. And then it, it, it really does seem cynical because it's like, oh, it's nostalgia for a 1980s thing. Let's cast one of the people from Stranger Things. Yeah. <laughs> 
And that, that, cause that, she's, oh, Finn Wolfhard plays the older brother who doesn't have a character. There really is only one character in this. Everybody else is, there may be a characteristic or there may be, um, they exist largely to turn into a dog, which is the case for two of them. <laughs> but then, yeah, you've got Finn Wolfhard now for Book of Stranger Things in the 1980s. Uh, and it feels so calculated. And then you have this horrible manipulative ending that didn't need to exist, has nothing to do with the original because the original has nothing like that at all. And also sees Harold Ramis get recreated on screen. He's mm. dead. He didn't get a choice about this. <laughs> I just find that sort of thing incredibly unethical, yeah. immoral, deeply concerning. And as I said, I think that thing's only going to get worse. Yeah. It was bad enough when you had Audrey Hepburn being dragged from the grave to advertise chocolate. <laughs> it's an it's an advert. You can largely dismiss that, but when you actually have somebody doing a role, like, the point like a role that they might never have played or not agreed with or something, and you just, oh yeah. no no we're, just, we're going to create them now. Eh. But apparently, other people don't have you know ethics or anything. <laughs> uh, yeah, and for all that though, it's. It's not an unenjoyable film. I just don't think it should exist. Yeah. So maybe by... Well, I wouldn't have known this till I'd seen it, of course, but by going to see it at the cinema, I've helped justify its existence, which is bad. <laughs> but I didn't know that till I saw it, so there's no way to. Uh, yeah, it's it's the cynicism that gets to me, though. And also the mystery of who's the audience? Yeah. Who's this for? Because the kids, there's no way kids are going to know what any of these references are to. But yeah, Ghostbusters didn't need lore. That's like the, f- the fact that Igor Shandor had created this build, like they made some sort of vaguely odd sounding name or name. It sounds like it might come from the areas of Europe, like around Transylvania or something, like kind of spooky stuff in literature that's been in the past. And then they kind of stumble into saving the world. But no, now, now, now there's Igor Shandor lore. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to stop talking about it now because the more talk about it, the less I'm going to like it and I did enjoy it. So I should probably <laughs> just leave it there. I'm going to move on to something very, very different. And that's the best liking device you're getting from me, Scott. <laughs> Next film, please. It's not that different. It's got ghosts in it too. Um, this is Last Night in Soho, uh, where Thomas and Mackenzie's Ellie Turner's moved to London from rural Cornwall to study fashion design. Does not go quite as well as you don't. Initially, that's from the overwhelming assault of the big city and the assorted arseholes that find their way there. But she seems to get some respite from her unnecessarily bitchy classmates when she leaves the Hall of Residence and lodges with Diana Riggs, Miss Collins. However, it turns out that this just swaps a world of mundane troubles for the supernatural. It seems that Ellie has already had previous form of seeing dead people, but only her much-missed mother. The vibe of Miss Collins' place is decidedly different, with her dreams seemingly transporting her to inhabit the world of Anna Taylor-Joy's Sandy. Seems quite cool at first, Sandy being a supremely confident go-getter in the swinging 60s, a time period that Ellie seems to have worn common with in whatever adjective we decide to call the 2020s. My choice would be suboptimal. Uh, however, <laughs> I was going for hellish, but... Uh... <laughs> 
Uh, however, Soho in the 60s has a notorious dark side and it's not long before Sandy falls into it. The man she trusted to help her singing career, Matt Smith's Jack, soon turning into her pimp, with her life spiralling downwards into what is apparently her murder. In her waking hours, Ellie tries desperately to find out more about Sandy and her fate, earning her a great many side eyes, particularly when she starts having to dodge the faceless ghosts of the past that have started encroaching on her, her reality, leading, as often happens in this kind of thing, to poorly evidenced accusations and an eventual reveal of the awful truth of things. Wikipedia lists this as a psychological horror, and not for the first time. Wikipedia is wrong, and I wish that it wasn't. Uh, there's a period where this more or less does fall in line with psychological horror, and it works very well. Uh, both Thomason McKenzie and Anna Taylor-Joy are likeable and sympathetic enough in their own ways, and Matt Smith has a blend of charisma and menace that almost made me stop thinking of his Doctor Who. Uh, there's also a great supporting turns uh, from the likes of Diana Rigg and Terence Stamp that adds to the mystery of it all. However, and this will come as no surprise to anyone that's heard our opinions on horror before, Supernatural elements can do one, and there's plenty <laughs> of that in this. And by the time Ellie's being chased around the library by what looks like dudes with tights over their faces, this has gone over the cliffs into a chasm of unnecessary filler material. Thankfully, there's not quite enough of that nonsense uh, in the back nine to completely spoil the good work done by the actors, which is arguably better than the script deserves, and when that's put together, uh, when that's put alongside director Edgar Wright's traditional breakneck pacing and soundtrack choices, and stylish cinematography from Chung Chung Hoon, m- more known around these parts for his partnership with Park Chan Wook. Well, there's more than enough to hold my attention in Last Night in Soho, and I'm sure for anyone who's less philosophically opposed to horror films, they'll get even more out of it. Uh, to sum up, minus five stars for putting Silla Black in it. Yeah, um, the Silla Black thing set me off on the, the wrong foot <laughs> for you know, at the beginning. Um, although, to be honest, it was never Silla Black's music I had an issue with. She had a couple of songs that I thought were passable enough. It was more her um, big gobbed, loud-mouthed, red hair from a bottle, nosy bitch persona from Surprise Surprise, I said, that I despised. So, (laughs) first of all, I got around the whole horror thing by deciding quite early on that this wasn't a horror. And I didn't regard it as such because horrors are all miserable and I wasn't miserable, so I thought it couldn't be one. Um, (laughs) I'm not sure your logic holds up there, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's my logic, Scott. Uh, (laughs) And also... It's not scary, although that could make it a horror because I've never seen a scary <laughs> horror film. Still waiting. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the psychological stuff, it got a bit much at the end, but for the most part, I was quite enjoying it. I was thinking, I was seeing it more of a kind of like a time travel alternate university sort of thing more than a horror. Okay, um, yeah. Th- that's how I've seen it. Yeah. Um, it was working for me. And it, certainly misdirected me well by because I, I had the same thoughts about the identity that the character does. I assumed that was coming. So, oh, that, that, that was not right. Okay, that, that well done. You, you played me there. Mm. And yeah, it, it looks good. It's well acted. It's, it doesn't have the same sort of use of music as this choreography and pacing that Edgar H. films usually do. It's a wee bit of it maybe, but well, but he's doing a very different type of film from what he's done before, so I guess that's fine. Just maybe a bit unexpected. And Thomas and Mackenzie's great. I've really been looking forward to seeing her in something else after Jojo Rabbit. Mm-hmm. So she's great. And it's it's fine. I, I enjoyed it and it looks interesting. It's just uh, the sort of psychological horror stuff gets a bit much at the end. And then I think my bigger problem is I don't think it stuck the landing, it, especially because... 
part of that ending seems to be forgiving murder. <laughs> yeah. Like, I know that these people deserved it. I, I think there's almost nothing in this world up to and including murder that actually deserves death because I don't think that's very moral. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly what these people did, unpleasant perhaps, but probably not worthy of death. But, you know, that's just me thinking that, you know, you shouldn't probably punish things with death. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fine. I didn't not enjoy it. I did, did enjoy it. <laughs> I forgot how to English. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I'm trying to stop myself from, from repeating myself like I keep doing. I quite liked it, that'll do. Yeah. It's perfectly acceptable entertainment. I was maybe hoping for a bit more, given the director's track record. Um, but yeah, it's, that's it, something it, a bit more special. Yeah. This is okay. Yeah, it is. it is... Certainly, if you if you've any kind of appreciation for his former work, then you will certainly get enough joy out of this to, to be worth recommending it. Um, if you haven't seen any Edgar Wright stuff, then probably there's better places to start than this. But um, if it's the kind of concept that kind of appeals to you, then certainly give it a go. As I say, I I, I definitely did not, I didn't not not like it. I didn't <laughs> I didn't not 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 like it. Um, but also, I didn't not 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 like it. So. 11 out of 10. <laughs> uh, just an addendum to what I said about thinking that, you know, most people don't deserve to be punished by death and there are very few crimes where that's actually appropriate. Um, Silver Black does, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and I, you know, <laughs> I think that you probably, sh- it's probably wrong to teach people that killing is wrong by killing them, but there is one person here who deserves death and that's her roommate because she was odious. Yes. <laughs> um, Stratocaster, a telecaster, whatever her name was. Yeah. Joe Caster, I think. <laughs> That's all I have to say on that, finally. Well, that will wrap us up for today. Uh, we'll be back with you next year. But it's not as, uh, not as long as the, the uh, future as it seems, but we'll be back with you soon enough uh, with another podcast. And until such time, take care of yourself and each other. I shall say goodbye. I'm sure you will do. Ciao.